0: in the marketplace. We'll be back with you soon with some new episodes of Bottom Line Faith, but for now, we hope and pray that this episode will be of tremendous value to help you live out your faith in the marketplace.
1: And now, the show that bridges the gap between faith and business. Welcome to Bottom Line Faith. On today's show, Ray sits down with Sean Askinosie, CEO and founder of Askinosie Chocolate what business can I buy? What business can I start? God, please show me a business. Show me something to do. So what God did is opened my heart to something that I would have never otherwise come to on my own and create a space in my spirit to contemplate and consider another path
0: Well, hello, everyone. This is Ray Hilbert, and I am your host here at Bottom Line Faith. And this is the program where we really love to focus on and discuss the intersection of faith, life, and business in the marketplace, where we get the opportunity here to talk with the most amazing, godly Christian entrepreneurs, CEOs, business owners, high-capacity, high-profile leaders in the marketplace— and we hear their stories, we we learn how their faith shapes their leadership, how their faith has gotten them through difficult times and trials and, and difficult decisions in the process. We celebrate those stories, and we want these examples of godly leadership in the marketplace to be an encouragement to you as you look to do the same each day. Today, on the phone lines, Sean Askinosy. Sean is the CEO and founder at Askinosie Chocolate. He is joining us from the Springfield, Missouri area. And let me just read a little bit about Sean and his background. He was a criminal defense lawyer who in 2006 left that career and began a chocolate factory. But that's really not the power of the story. The story is how God is using Sean and his company literally To change the world. Just a couple of highlights. His company was recently named by Forbes as one of the 25 best small companies in America. He has been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, on Bloomberg, MSNBC, and numerous other national and international media outlets was named by, oh, the Oprah Magazine, one of 15 guys who are saving the world, and on and on, honorary doctorates, a number of awards. But Sean, welcome to Bottom Line Faith.
1: Thank you, Ray. I'm really looking forward to this conversation.
0: Well, I have been too, and Sean, for those who are regular listeners to our program, I think one of the things that our listeners have come to appreciate is just some of the incredible diversity of guests that we've had here on the program, ranging from people like David Green, the CEO and founder of Hobby Lobby, and athletes and actors and entertainers, but really this whole focus of CEOs and leaders—you didn't always. Well, I don't know. You did you set out to become the CEO of a chocolate company?
1: No, I I set out to be the best criminal defense lawyer I could be um, you know, I went to college and law school and worked hard and spent almost a lifetime in the courtroom, almost 20 years, never lost a criminal jury trial, specialized in murder and the defense of murder cases and other very serious felonies. But, you know, there came a time when I didn't love it anymore. and I needed to find a new passion. I needed to find a new inspiration. And that took five years. So I didn't start out certainly growing up thinking, hey, you know, someday I want to start a chocolate factory. But I believe at the end of those five years, which I hope we'll get to talk about, that God answered my prayer. It just took five years. And the answer to that prayer was uh, this little chocolate factory.
0: Okay. And we absolutely want to get into that part of the story. But what was it about chocolate? Was there a passion? Was there something there that was behind this story. You could have perhaps done a number of different things. What was it about getting into the chocolate-making business that was so attractive and appealing to you?
1: When I was a lawyer, I didn't have any hobbies. Um, Speaking of (laughs) hobby-lobby, I didn't have any. I I read about tactics for the courtroom. I read everything about cross-examination, expert witnesses. I just didn't have any other outside hobbies. So the first thing I started doing for a hobby was grilling. I bought a big green egg and then I bought another one and I started grilling all the time. Then I started baking. Then I started making chocolate desserts and then I started making chocolate from scratch. That's how it happened. And I think the thing that really attracted me to this was that I knew that I would never fully master chocolate. It's a very complicated thing to work with and it changes with the weather I have to source cocoa beans, which I do directly from farmers around the world. I travel and meet with them. just got back from the Amazon last week, and I knew that that would afford me the chance to travel and meet with farmers and work with them directly. My grandparents were farmers here in southwest Missouri, and it's part of the reason why I chose it, and that's pretty much it.
0: Okay, I'm intrigued, and I'm going to ask more about the business side of this and manufacturing in just a moment. But you talked about this five-year journey or process from the calling of the courtroom to the calling in business, and particularly Askanosi Chocolate. So can we now talk a little bit about that five-year journey? What were you hearing from God? What was that like for you? Because you made a really big change in at least career vocational pathway. Walk us through that five-year journey.
1: Okay, thank you for asking. Okay, I need a little bit of setup, yeah. here's the setup. Okay. My dad was raised Jewish in New York City. My grandmother was from Hungary. Her relatives died in the Holocaust. My grandfather was from Russia. He was Jewish and kicked out of the country. My dad was in the Marine Corps for 14 years, and somehow they transferred into Springfield, Missouri. He converted to Christianity when he was in the Marine Corps. My mother was a Southern Baptist farm girl from Southwest Missouri So they raised me and my brother as an Episcopalian, which I am today. But my father was a lawyer as well. And when I was 12 years old, he was diagnosed with lung cancer. And that was really very hard for me. He was my hero. He was a really physically fit guy. And and, uh, I just never thought anything could happen to him. Well, this was at a time in the early 70s when If you can imagine, there was actually a charismatic movement in the Episcopal Church, and there was a prayer group at church that would come over to our house. I'm 13 years old at this point, and uh, the prayer group would come at all hours of the day and night, lay hands on my father, say he would be healed, spoke in tongues, kind of scared me. They talked really loudly, which also scared me, but the leader of the prayer group told me to never speak with my father about death, because if I did, it would be a sign of doubt, and that Jesus wouldn't heal him. So we didn't talk about it. And I helped take care of my dad. My mom couldn't do a lot of this stuff. And I did it myself, 13, 14 years old. I was with him when he died. The cancer had spread to his brain. And, I mean, he had tried a case in court the week before, but it was like a stroke that he had. And, and I was with him and I begged God out loud, please don't let him die. You know, Please let him live. And he died. And I spent the next 25 years Uh, thinking that I could prove to God that I did not need Him. I could do just fine myself. So I went about accomplishing every single thing that I possibly could. I was governor of Boys State. I worked for the American Embassy in Thailand when I was 19 years old. I went to college. I went to law school I was not a very smart guy, but I scored in the top of my law school class in the top 20%. Then I went out and worked for a huge firm in Texas and made a lot of money. Then I went on my own to practice only criminal law. And as I mentioned earlier, never losing a criminal jury trial. It was win, 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 and make money, lots of money. Then as this tape is running 25 years ahead, I realized I could not do that anymore. Something was missing. And my daughter, who was nine at the time, and my co-author in this book, but she was nine at the time, and she read a book to me out loud called Tuesdays with Maury. Mm -hmm. And God spoke to me through that book. It changed my life, and I realized after hearing her read this book to me that I needed to do something and that I needed to have a conversation with the grief in my life that was unresolved over my father's death. So one of the things I did, still practicing law, still trying cases, is I started working on Fridays as a volunteer in the palliative care department of a local large hospital. Palliative care, for those of your listeners who don't know, it's hospice in the hospital. Essentially, all the patients are dying in one form or another. And I would, I was just a volunteer. So when I was in town, I did this. They would give me a list of patients in the hospital who'd asked for a visit. Many of them were alone. I would go in and I would just visit with them about whatever, you know, and they were all over the hospital, oncology, Hmm, neurology, cardiology, and they were all in some stage of dying. I would talk with them about their younger days or whatever pie recipes. And I would often read to them and I would read scripture to them and at the end of my visit, I would always ask, hey, one of the things I do as a volunteer is pray for people. Would you like me to say a prayer for you? And um, one of the things I've learned is that 99% of dying people will take a prayer if offered. And this is the key. This is what happened. I said, what would you like me to pray for? And let me just say, this is the opposite of how I was yeah. treated as a teenager by this prayer
0: group. Right, right.
1: I asked them, ma'am or sir, what would you like me to pray for? And some would say, would you pray that I die today? I'm in pain. I'm ready to go. Would you pray that I'm healed and that I can walk out of here? Would you pray that I live two more weeks to my 60th wedding anniversary? Yes. I I listened to them, and listening to them tell me what they wanted me to pray for often opened up massive conversation between us or family members who were present And then what I did is I repeated their exact words back to them without judging the prayer. I'd ask if I could touch their hand or their shoulder while I prayed for them. And I did that, and I did that, sometimes 15 patients a day, sometimes five. And there were days, and I'm not saying this happened every time, but there were days that I would leave the hospital, and as I was walking to my car, I was walking on air. It was as if my feet weren't on the ground. What is that? Mm. It's called joy. It's indescribable joy. That was the unmasking of the great sorrow of my life. And so what God did, this is why it's so hard for me to answer this question, why chocolate? Here's what I was I am a type A driven guy. I research everything. So I was trying to say, Well, what business can I buy? What business can I start? God, please, you know, show me a business, show me something to do. It wasn't happening. So what God did is opened my heart to something that I would have never otherwise come to on my own and create a space in my spirit to contemplate and consider another path. And that path was chocolate. And it came to me while I was driving my car on the way to a funeral of a distant relative. And I had no idea where chocolate came from, even though I was working with it. I had no idea. That's it. Then within three months of that, I was in the Amazon studying how farmers harvest cocoa beans. That's a long story, and I'm really sorry, to, but I, I felt like I needed to share that with your listeners.
0: Oh, I thank you, Sean. I'm really glad you did because it is as much about the context as it is, is about the content. But thank you for that because what I'm going to take away from this part of our conversation is at a very young age, you had some, I believe, well-intentioned, perhaps well Uh, hearted Christ followers that painted a certain picture of faith and an experience with God, but God wanted to reveal with you over a 25-year period of time when you were not walking with him, but he wanted to eventually bring you to another place, and that's understanding his grace and his mercy and his compassion. Hopefully I kind of have a summation of that. Did I get that about right as far as the big narrative here? Yeah, about right, except
1: during those 25 years, I was walking with him. I just didn't know it.
0: Got it. Got it.
1: And I was still, I was there. He was there. Oftentimes, I just didn't recognize him. Got it. I wasn't fully aware. Yeah. But I don't think he ever, he he certainly never left me. That's right. I, I might have left him.
0: I appreciate that. And we'll probably touch base on this a little bit later, but I just, I caught something you shared there because I knew we were going to talk about this, but you you mentioned your book that you co-authored, You and Your Daughter, Meaningful Work, The Quest to Do Great Business and Find Your Calling and Feed Your Soul. We're going to talk in a few moments about what's in that book, but how can our audience learn about you or your book? What's the best way for them to learn about you?
1: To learn about the book, they can go to Amazon.com, and not the place where I was last week—the the Amazon. But, um, <laughs> they can go to Amazon. They can go to Amazon.com, and uh, isn't it funny now that when people say Amazon, they just automatically think .com, and yes. not you know the place right. off of here. Anyway, so uh, Amazon.com on the book. Just search my name or meaningful work, and then for our chocolate, it's askanosi.com our website, and then I have a blog at Seanaskinosi.com. and those are the best ways to learn. Thank you for asking.
0: You bet, and we'll get to the contents of the book in a minute. Okay, so let's take a couple of moments. Let's talk business. Let's talk process. You said you had to learn where chocolate came from. Walk us through, um, where does it come from? What does it look like for you? You you mentioned you go to the Amazon, you you go directly to the, the direct sourcing to the farmer's Walk us through. Help us understand, at least from your standpoint, how your chocolate is made. Take us through the process.
1: Sure. Like last week, for instance, as I was in Ecuador uh, at one origin and then south uh, Ecuador on the border of Peru and Amazon, I was looking at our, our next crop of cocoa beans, and these are grown 20 degrees north and south of the equator on trees that reach 20, 30 feet tall, and the beans are inside a pod about the size of maybe a small football. And there might be 60, 70 beans in a pod. They don't taste anything like chocolate. They're very sweet. And there's a lot of pulp around these beans or seeds. And they need to be fermented, naturally fermented for about six days and then dried in the sun for about 10 days. And they're put in burlap sacks and then put on a container ship for me. and, And then they come to my factory and Springfield, Missouri, and we're one of the few chocolate makers in the United States that also directly imports these beans. I pay the farmers direct and then I profit share with them and we open our books to them. We translate our financials into their language. So when I profit shared last week, my financial statements were in Spanish. In two months when I'm in Tanzania, our financials will be in Swahili. But the beans arrive at our factory, we roast those in a what looks like a coffee roaster, and then we grind them in a mill, and it makes a paste, the beans make a paste, and then we add cocoa butter that we make here from scratch out of those same cocoa beans, and then we add organic sugar, and we grind that up together, and it reaches a very smooth consistency, and then we mold those into chocolate bars, and package them up, and that's it, and I skipped about, whole 40 steps, that's (laughs) it, pretty much.
0: (laughs) Well, I'm sure... But it's important for our audience to understand why it's important to you to deal directly with these farmers and why your business model you talked about opening your books, you talked about the transparency there. Why do you run your business model as you do
1: well the The first thing that you were asking about is the farmers my grandparents were what we call smallholder farmers you know they they had a small farm and They had cattle and some crops. They were very simple people. My grandfather only made it to the sixth grade. They were members of the same church for over 60 years, lived in that same farm for over 60, 70 years. And growing up, I spent a lot of time on their farm. And at the time, I didn't really respect it. I didn't know what I had. And I told myself when I was young that I would never go back there. And uh, I was, quote, better than that and I wish I could talk to my grandparents now and let them know how wrong I was. Mm. And, and Because I honor my grandparents by working directly with these farmers around the world. This trip I took last week was my 43rd origin trip to meet with Cocoa Farmers since I started the business. And some of these trips take a long time. But I, I believe that I'm, in some sense, not only honoring my grandparents, but that I'm with my grandparents. When I'm with farmers... fill in the blank country. All of these farmers that I work with are, are very poor. They're in remote conditions. Now, to your question about why the transparency, why do I share profits? Every aspect of my work and my life is centered aspirationally in my faith. So the reason I say aspirationally is because, um, as Paul would say, I'm working out my salvation. Mm-hmm. And I don't want someone to misinterpret what I'm saying. I'm not saying that I am working my salvation. I'm working out my salvation. I'm not saying that good works is the key. But what I am saying is that these works, the way I am and who I am, is not just part of my business— it's part of my product. Mm-hmm. And I write about this extensively in my book. And what one of the things that we say here at the Chocolate Factory is, it's not about the chocolate. It's about the chocolate. And that is a confounding phrase for many people. But what I'm saying is, is that transparency, profit sharing, working with farmers, we work with students, which I haven't talked about yet. All of that stuff, that doesn't have anything to do with chocolate. It has to do with how we are as business people, how we operate the business. On the other hand, it has everything to do with chocolate. Why? Because we could not separate who I am as a business person, how we operate this business from the resulting chocolate itself. Those two things are inseparable, mm-hmm. just like your podcast. Yeah. You could give somebody a script and say the exact same words that you say. It wouldn't be the same. Yeah, It's not the same. And so I want to infuse every single part of my business and my life with this practice. That's what I'm trying to do.
0: I absolutely love that, and thank you for, for sharing that with us. That really is at the heart and the core of what we're trying to communicate in this program at Bottom Line Faith. That's the mindset and the worldview that we're trying to encourage other Christ followers, is there is no separation, It's the integration. I opened up the program by saying it is the intersection of those things Mm -hmm. that's really foundational, and so I I love that. And so I would like to, just on the business side, talk a little bit about maybe some of the lessons you've learned along the way, some of the mistakes. As you look back, you've been in business, what, roughly 13 years now? Is that about right?
1: Yeah, 13 years in this business and 20 years in the lawyer business.
0: Absolutely. So I'll really let you answer this however you feel led to do so. But as you look back over the course of your career, what would you say is the hardest, most difficult business decision you ever had to make? And what role did your faith play in that?
1: I would say that one of the most difficult decisions that comes to mind a few years ago was in East Africa and Tanzania. And we had a container of cocoa beans that we'd ordered from our farmers about 14 metric tons of cocoa beans, and it would have represented a year's supply for us. We also, at the time, were funding and managing and staffing a school lunch program for malnourished children in remote Tanzania. The way we funded it was with no donations. The farmers there and the PTA members and teachers sold us rice in one kilo packages. This is beautiful gourmet rice, and we sold that rice in the American marketplace and took all not a portion, all of the sales proceeds, pushed it back to the school monthly to feed 1,000 kids a day in that school. Well, they could not fit the rice on the container. It wouldn't fit. And I needed to have about a metric ton of that to fund a year's worth of school lunches. And so I had to make the decision whether I was going to take cocoa beans off that container that I'd already paid for give them back to the farmers and let them just have it and sell it again, and then I wouldn't have enough cocoa beans or put the rice on the container and fund the school lunches. That was not an easy decision, but it was an easy decision. What did I do? What do you think I did? Uh,
0: Well, I've been doing this long enough to know the wise thing for me to do is say, what did you do, Sean? (laughs) I think I know, but I want to hear. You got me on the edge of my seat, I'll tell you that much.
1: I took the beans off and gave yeah. them back to the farmers and let them sell them again.
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, yeah. here's the deal. That's powerful.
1: Was it a hard decision? Not really. Yeah. But it was tough. I mean, because I knew I'd be shorting us, I would be shorting our business. But here's the thing. This is what I want to impart. The feeding program that we have, we still have a feeding program in the Philippines. We we have provided, we only have 16 people in our company total, one, six. That's it. We're very small. We just surpassed 1.2 million school lunches that we've provided for kids in the Philippines and Tanzania that we manage. We do this ourselves. And what I'm trying to say is in making that decision, the community work that we do is so enmeshed and intertwined in the business, so-called business, uh, in in air quotes, there is no difference. So that's what I'm trying to say is that I knew it would be okay one way or the other. No, it's even more than that. We're profitable here, but not hugely. And I Mm -hmm. give profits to farmers as well. And I make a lot less money than I did as a lawyer. You know, I have a loan at the bank for the real estate here. But here's the thing. This whole thing could fall into a hole tomorrow. I mean, my business could be gone. Something could happen. I mean, I don't have a lot of reserves. I don't have a lot of—I don't have an investor. I don't have a partner. It's just—and so this—what I just told you about this decision that I made, what I'm trying to say is, is that everything could fall apart, and it would still be fine. Yeah. It's going to be okay.
0: That's the faith part, trusting God. But here's why I hesitated to answer your question, because— Sometimes as Christ followers in business, we do have very difficult decisions. And if that decision meant that because I, I, I like try to play the movie to the end, right? Or read go to the back of the book first. If that decision to not bring those beans back meant that you were gonna have to close down your company, it was a year's supply, 16 people, families could potentially lose their jobs the company that is sustaining and causing all of these incredible kingdom activities to occur could go away, to your point, and sometimes those are difficult decisions, because you had the immediate decision of the rice versus perhaps the long-term sustainability of the company, and sometimes, well, those are just difficult decisions. And so I, I really wanted to hear you play that story out, how God led you I appreciate that. I think that's powerful. And, and what I'm hearing here, and I hope our listeners are hearing as well, is that last comment you just made. It could all go away tomorrow. It could all go away tomorrow. So tell me more about that, Sean. How do you run a company with such an open hand and an open heart in trusting God at that level? That's not an easy thing to do for most of us.
1: It's... Okay, I'm 58 years old, and remember what I said. And I do this. I I practice this, and I have a particular practice and a prayer practice every day. But this is aspirational. So I want I want to make sure people understand. I mean, I approach this with humility and an understanding that I am not perfect at this yeah. at, at this process. But yeah. it works like this, and I talk about this in chapter five of my book. But I have had the um, the opportunity, particularly in Africa, but in some other places over the last 13 or 14 years, to experience and witness glimpses of the divine. What do I mean? I mean that when I'm on these trips and I take I we take local high school students to Tanzania every other year as part of our chocolate university program so they can meet cocoa farmers and see how we do business and experience transformation. What I'm saying is, is I pray before I go and when I'm on these trips, God, I know I'm going to see you and it's going to be where I'm not expecting it. And now I've done this enough that I know I'm going to experience this divine moment or two or three. It's not long. It's often just a glimpse. And I could say maybe three or four times that this has happened in Tanzania, well, This is an otherworldly experience where the veil is lifted for a moment, and I have the chance to see and peek into divinity, into eternity. It's heaven on earth. And what that does is it gives me an opportunity to, let's use your word, to integrate that experience into the real world. It lets me bring that thread back to my home, to my community, to my business, and it gives me a faith that is palpable and not unrealistic either, and not expecting that there won't ever be suffering or pain, because there will be, but it's a true, authentic experience that gives me an opportunity to practice my faith.
0: Uh, It's incredible. Take just a moment. I've got a couple questions here in this section of our conversation. Take just a moment. Tell us a little bit more about Chocolate University. I I was intrigued by that. Sure.
1: When I built this factory, I put it into a part of our community that's undergoing revitalization and has a lot of poverty surrounding it. There was a homeless shelter down the block from my factory when I first started with 80 kids and I did it. So what we decided to do 13 years ago when we started was to start a program called Chocolate University to engage the elementary school students uh, in our neighborhood. And we've been doing that now since we started. They come here, we go there to their school, and they really feel like they're kind of part of the company by the year's end. And we have a middle school program with a nearby school. We have a middle school summer school program now that we've done for three or four years. And then the big one is the high school program. Juniors and seniors in high school compete to be selected as one of fourteen students. Half of them are private pay; you know their parents are doctors and they can afford the four thousand bucks. The other half, we raise the money for. These are our kids who are in poverty but very, very bright. And they have a business immersion program where they spend a week on the very university campus near our factory, learning about our business, Tanzania culture, language, and history. They go home and pack. Meet me at the airport. And we take them to Tanzania and uh, they have a deepening of their immersion experience with a front row seat to an international business transaction. And they're meeting with local farmers that I've known for over a decade. So the farmers treat them as if they're members of the family, which is a very, very unique aspect of this experience. And like I said, we've been doing that thing since 2009. And I meet with students to this day who are part of that program from the very beginning.
0: That's so incredible. And I loved what you said. You're getting glimpses of the divine, and you are responding in in obedience to what it says back in the book of Isaiah about serving the orphans and and those who are without family and, and those who are in poverty. This is how we show the love of God to this world. You're reaching farmers. You, you talked about your grandparents and that heritage and that culture. This is really an amazing, amazing model. So I want to, first of all, say thank you for modeling obedience. And then I want to follow up with this question. I want us to imagine that right now that someone's listening to this conversation. Perhaps they're a business owner like yourself or they're a high-capacity leader or a manager or what have you. And Sean, maybe they're wrestling with this concept or this idea about letting go or about how do I really take what God has given to me to build and to lead and to grow, and how do I use that for the kingdom? How do I use that for His glory? What words of encouragement, what words of advice kind of help coach our audience on what would you say to that person who's wrestling with this concept right now?
1: I would say Christ said, take up your cross and follow me. And What he's saying is, and Paul said this repeatedly, to die to yourself. And that is easy to read in black and white and not as easy to execute. And the way to execute it is like this. You, listener, you have a broken heart. And if you don't have a broken heart, then we have a whole other hour conversation we need to talk to you about. Right? Because you have a broken heart. What I'm asking you to do is to... Stop analyzing all of this and know that someone that you know needs your broken heart and they need you to serve them without expecting anything in return. And what I'm asking you to do is serve someone out of that spot of your own broken heart. Hmm. That is when we will have the opportunity for clarity. And that is when God, let me just say this if you pray that Christ will reveal to you someone or a group of people who need your broken heart. I promise you that that prayer will be answered without question. Hmm. What happens after that is the mystery. It's the mystery of living in the present moment and recognizing that answers will come in a way that you didn't expect. That's what will happen. That's what I encourage people to do.
0: That is so incredibly powerful. Thank you for that. Sean, uh, one more time, how could our audience reach out to you, learn more about you, your company? We're going to talk just a moment more about your book, but what's the best way for folks to check up on you?
1: The best way is our website, askinosee.com, A-S-K-I-N-O-S-I-E. And then my own personal website is Sean, S-H-A-W-N, Askinosi.com, And my email is on there. People can email me and read, blogs, and of course they can order chocolate, and we ship it all over the country. Uh, Thank you for that.
0: Fantastic. Sean, let's talk just for a moment about your new book. It's entitled Meaningful Work, The Quest to Do Great Business, Find Your Calling, and Feed Your Soul. Tell us a little bit about the book, and what was that process like?
1: The process was a gut-wrencher, (laughs) because we did actually write it, and it took almost three years to write it. You know, running a chocolate factory and traveling all over the world, while we wrote it, I think one of the things that made it harder to write is this isn't just the Sean Eskenosi story. Oh, hey, look at this. It's written in such a way that we can use our chocolate factory and the model that you and I have been discussing as a backdrop. But it's written in a way that that backdrop can hopefully be a guide for other entrepreneurs, leaders, and people who are searching for their vocation for their calling, both individually and collectively as an organization, because I believe that organizations can also share a collective vocation and calling that they can uh, live out as part of their business. Mm
0: -hmm. And your co-author is your daughter.
1: Yes, my daughter is our chief marketing officer, and she is just an amazingly gifted writer. And the brand voice that people and here in our company is is really her. Mm-hmm. She started working for me when she was 16. She's 29 now. So really since we started the company. So working on this together was one of the greatest experiences of my life. I'm if only one person bought the book, it wouldn't really well, yeah, of course I hope my publisher didn't hear me say that. But <laughs> but I mean I I just the chance to to do this with her, I mean, yeah. and remember what I said before, she's the one who read that book to me out loud. Yeah. And when Lauren was a little girl, this is right about that 25 year mark when I was like, wow, what am I doing? Things right about the time when she read this book to me, she was like nine years old. And she's the one who got me praying again. I started praying with her every night before we mm-hmm. would tuck her into bed. And so she started me in my adult prayer life to this day. And and prayer is a central, central component of my life. And I start every morning with that and have for several years. Mm -hmm. But anyway, to answer that, it was a great experience working with her on this book. I, I wouldn't trade it for anything.
0: Well, we're going to transition, Sean, to the last kind of section of our conversation today. And so as you look back again over the course of your 13 years in business, or all those decades before as a criminal defense lawyer, what's the biggest mistake you could ever recall making, biggest failure you went through, and what did God teach you as a result of that? The
1: biggest mistake was I allowed the need to win to supersede my relationship with people, in particular, a couple of friends that I went to law school with One who was a prosecutor and he was in my study group and I was in his wedding and I was against him in cases. And I allowed our friendship to deteriorate and supersede my desire and need to win. Mm. Uh, And I allowed myself to be tricked into thinking that I could justify the ends by whatever means. And that was wrong. And that friend ended up getting brain cancer. And it was about the time of my sort of return to faith. And uh, he was one of the first people that I really, where I really kind of started my practice of intercessory prayer. And uh, we are, I'm proud to say he's still alive, still a lawyer, still trying cases. Mm -hmm. And we're great friends. And we, have lunch often, uh, with another friend of mine from school. And the lesson that I learned with this is that we have to have perspective and we have to have a perspective of love. I think this is really important. I think that Christ calls us to love above all else. And I think we can lose ourselves if we're not careful. And and I did lose myself and I'm thankful for the opportunity to return to what i believe is the right way and then to have the chance to pray for him i mean that was wow. a gift wow it was a gift that i i am thankful i'm thankful for that and i i was spared something it could have been a lot worse
0: what a great lesson learned and i'm so glad that you were able to share that and that this particular friend's still alive, and God's restored that relationship, so and if you had the chance to go back and give advice to the twenty year old Sean, what advice would you give to the twenty year old you
1: <laughs> I wouldn't give any advice here's what I would do. I would go up to him and I would give him a big hug and i would I would hold the hug uncomfortably long and the message to him would be a heart-to-heart message that it's going to be okay. That is what I would tell him. That's the way I would treat him.
0: Wow. That's so good. So good. If you were to give advice or encouragement to other Christ followers in business, in leadership, in the marketplace who want to live out their faith in a deeper, more real, profound way— For they too could have a, as you described earlier, a glimpse of the divine. What advice or encouragement would you give them?
1: The advice would be twofold. One, practice awareness and have the faith that God will grant you both the awareness and the glimpse. We're never going to see it if we're not aware. And I think one of the best ways to be aware is to ask. It's right here, it's right in front of us. Even people who've spent years, seeing it and practicing it, are only seeing a tiny fraction. It's here, it's right in front of us, and God wants us to see it. We have to ask.
0: That's beautiful, Sean. Okay, now, for our listeners, Sean, who tune in on a weekly basis, or at least a regular basis here in Bottom Line Faith, they know that this is always my last question, and I call it my 423 questions, based out of Proverbs 423, where Solomon writes, above all else, guard your heart, for it determines the course of your life. So, Sean, if you have an opportunity towards the tail end of your life, or at any point, to gather your family, your friends, and your loved ones, those who are most precious to you, Mm -hmm. and you're going to have the opportunity to pass along one piece of advice, I'd like you to fill in the blank. Above all else...
1: Above all else... very simple, and it's to love each other. And I know that I could come up with something more philosophically profound, but that's what I would say. I had a dream one time when my dad was sick, and in the dream I was a disciple, not an apostle, or I was a follower of Christ. And we were walking down this meadow, and Jesus Himself turned to me, and He said, "Why can't people just love each other?" And I've remembered that dream my whole life, and I I think it's, I think it's the way, it's the way to a joyful life, and it's the way to a life that we can, it's a way it's a way to a life that we can practice our faith. It's the way we show the fruit of the Spirit, and that's what I would tell my loved ones above all else, love each other.
0: Thank you. That is fantastic, Sean, and that what a, what a great encapsulation of our entire conversation today. Sean, one more time, if our listeners want to learn more about you, your company, order your book, what's the best way for them to do so?
1: The book is on Amazon.com, Meaningful Work, and they can just search my name or Meaningful Work, and and our chocolate, and our story, and a lot of really interesting things about chocolate and the places we buy it, Askanosi.com, and then my blog is seanaskanosi.com.
0: Sean, thank you so much for being our guest here today at Bottom Line Faith. What an encouragement, what an inspiration. Thank you for your obedience of God's calling on your life for faithfully living out your faith in business, in the marketplace, and literally impacting the world. Thank you for being on our program today.
1: Well, thank you for having
0: me. Well, folks, what an amazing conversation we've had with Sean today. I pray, I pray that you have been encouraged, that you have been inspired, that this has lifted your heart, lifted your spirit about what it means and what it looks like to be a follower of Christ in business and in leadership. So until next time, I am your host here at Bottom Line Faith, encouraging you to faithfully live out your God calling in the marketplace every day. Bottom Line Faith is brought to you by Truth
1: at Work. If you'd like to hear about new episodes or listen to past episodes, visit us online at bottomlinefaith.org. You can also subscribe to the show through Google Play and iTunes.